Hello and welcome to the latest in our club development series of podcasts where we aim to share resources, guidance, case studies and best practice to help you grow a winning sports club. In this episode, we're going to be speaking to Alan Russell, Head of Supporters Direct Scotland. Now, if you've ever listened to the Supporters Direct Behind the Goals podcast, you'll be more than familiar with Alan as he is the co-host on the show. Today, however, I'm going to be interviewing Alan about his work on a recent report about volunteering in Scottish football. It's a publication he's pulled together to not only highlight the extent of volunteering in Scottish football, but also to help share best practice when it comes to developing volunteer structures at clubs of all shapes and sizes. Now, although we're going to be talking about volunteering in the context of football, many of the principles Alan talks about are applicable to other sports and indeed other sectors, so it's well worth staying tuned in. So without further ado, here is Alan Russell, Head of Supporters Direct Scotland, talking about volunteering within Scottish football. Okay, thank you, Alan, for, for joining us on the on the club development podcast. Familiar territory for you. Yeah, um, who are you again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, today we're going to be talking specifically about the report that you've written uh, for for supporters direct Scotland that looks at, at volunteering in Scottish football. Yeah, um, it's a very. Uh, beautiful reports been beautifully designed I have to say and uh, covers covers a lot of ground when it comes to volunteering in Scottish football so I wondered if you could perhaps tell us a little bit about um, the motivation for writing the report and, and kind of how it came about and, and the purpose for it really. Yeah well I mean I've been aware for, for quite a number of years just how reliant Scottish football clubs at every level right to the top level uh, are on volunteers um, and I think it's I'm not sure if it's unique to Scotland, um, but it certainly seems to be quite a quite a distinctive feature of Scottish football. Just the amount of work that is done by volunteers doing it as as just part of their love for the club, part of their part of their support support to the club. So most volunteers are supporters. Some of them aren't supporters of the club, aren't fans. They're just people who like helping out, and they actually never see very much football. Um, but it's a very common thing for people who supported the club for years and years and years to then want to get involved and to help the club out. Um, and it's often been said that Scottish football wouldn't function without the work of volunteers. So a very, very critical part of our game. Uh, and I, th- I think it's also something that, that, that creates and embeds lasting relationships between supporters and their club. And they'll stick, stick with the club during the hard times um, and not lose interest if the team's not doing well in the park, if they're involved in other things. So I think it's a really good, uh, a good way of clubs uh, yeah, keeping lifelong supporters um, and it's and it's obviously got a massive massive amount of value. Uh, the other motivation for, for doing this project was um, the availability of funding from Supporters Direct Europe. Um, you know, we both used to be part of the, the Supporters Direct organisation uh, that ran across the UK and Europe. Uh, we're both separate organisations now but we have very very close links with them. Um, they have good relationships with UEFA, get, get substantial funding from UEFA. And uh, in 2020, they announced the, the SD Europe Fund that would allow uh, national associations and clubs in, in, across the continent uh, to do various bits of work. Um, um, so we, we put an application to, to, to that fund to do this project around volunteering. Uh, and that my again, my idea was that it seems to be quite a distinctive thing in Scotland. So I wanted to share that story across the continent. And I also wanted this, the, the, these stories about good volunteer management practices uh, to become more commonplace in Scotland so the clubs would learn from each other. So, you know, a kind of a dual motivation for it really to benefit Scotland and also to um, to put something back into the, the European uh, supporter movement. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose that's a really nice part of, of the project really is the opportunity for sharing best practice and, and that kind of sharing that across the SD Europe's network of clubs as well, being yeah. able to, to share that knowledge. Yeah. Um, so the report starts with a really lovely uh, intro from Daniel Gray from, a, from the publication Snapshot. I wondered why you chose that particular quote to sort of open the report. Um, I, I, was, I was reading the book, um, over the, I think it was over the Christmas holidays, uh, and it just struck me that this, this piece is called The Homefront Stoics, and it describes, you know, one of these, 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 these characters that every Scottish football supporter would recognise, of somebody who turns up week in, week out, every Saturday, Tuesday nights, Wednesday nights, you know, wherever, the, wherever the games are happening, happening in good weather, in bad, bad weather to help their club. 
and it talks about you know it has this it paints this you know daniel's a, a great writer and his, his stuff is just really really well done always strikes a chord with me he describes this figure that looks like a russian doll um with a <laughs> you know, tending to a tea urn and and uh, and treating everybody she encounters with with tea which is a the staple of scottish football um but he talks about you know this battalion of volunteers these home front stoics um, that keeps that keeps Scottish football running um, week in week out year in year out in Scottish football and it was just the 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 perfect metaphor or the perfect image um, for this this vast army of, of of people who are giving so much of their time and their attention and their passion um, for the sport that they love and for the club that they love so and it was it was great and I don't want the the, the report to be uh, to, to come across as too academic, to be too theoretical. So the first thing that you read is this, you know, full-page story about you know this Russian doll-like figure uh, that, that Daniel Daniel wrote, and Daniel was kind enough to, to give us permission to use this uh, in, in in our report. You then get into the sort of drier, dustier, academic, theoretical bit with lots of statistics in it, and then you, we, we'll get some other stories later in in the report. So it, it kind of topped and tailed the report with some some stories that people will recognise. Um, from the football that, that they know and, and, and they love, and and a lot of volunteers will recognise themselves in, in in this story as well. Yeah, very much so. You mentioned some of the statistics there, and I wondered if you could perhaps touch upon the extent. I mean, you mentioned it was almost the lifeblood of Scottish football. There, um, I wondered if you could perhaps highlight the extent of of the value of volunteering to to Scottish football in terms of some of those statistics. Yeah, well, there's there's, there's a lot of statistics we draw on in in the report. Um, some of them look at you know, the value of volunteering to Scottish society as a whole. Some of them break it down to sport, and then we have some statistics on football. Um, but as for, for Scottish society as a whole, the level of volunteering has, has, been, has been quite robustly estimated over the years. Um, I'm just looking at the, at the Metro page because I don't remember all these numbers off the top of my head. But 28% of adults and 52% of young people aged 11 to 16 volunteer regularly in Scotland. And 75% of people that volunteer do so for up to up to 10 hours a month. Um, so 25% of people give more than that of their, of their time every month. Volunteering is worth over £2 billion to the Scottish economy. Uh, that's quite a, a well-researched figure. It's, and it's it's that figure pops up in a number of different studies that have been taking place at different times. So I think, I think that's pretty robust. And the value of volunteering in Scottish football has been estimated at 334 million euros. So that was a UEFA report. It's, it's uh, the, the report is called Grow, um, and uh, that's that's really looked um, at Scotland as an exemplar of volunteering in, in, in football. Uh, so that gave me a bit of reassurance that Scotland maybe is uh, at the leading edge uh, in, in doing this, and it's been one of the first countries to actually document and quantify that that, that impact. Um, there's a, there's a lot of other statistics that go in there and, and breaking it down into sort of demographics, you know, what, what a typical volunteer is likely to look like in terms of their demographics, in terms of their income, in terms of what they, what they do um, and, and, and how that, that all works out. Uh, in Scottish football, um, a lot of those volunteers are, are actually running football teams. So they're coaching, they're, 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 they're secretaries. Um, an estimated, estimated 630,000 people in Scotland play recreational football. Um, that we have over 2,000 clubs, um, and I can't remember the, um, the the number of coaches in, in Scotland, but it's it's something something like 20,000 coaches qualified coaches in Scotland, something like that. Uh, I may have got that that figure wrong, um, uh, but we have. A lot of football played in Scotland in every community and every every place where football happens, it, it requires um, it requires volunteers to, to give their time and effort, as well as the match day operations that are in, in a professional game. So that whole hinterland of community football, of recreational football, of semi-professional football that's entirely run, the football side is run by volunteers. Then you step into the professional game and so many of the match day, uh, match day functions are done by volunteers as well. Um, so as well as the economic values of, of volunteering, um, the, 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 the value in terms of health care and in health improvement of football in Scotland as well has been, has been documented and measured in that UEFA report. So you know, Scotland saves 762 million euros per year in health care costs by having a healthy, uh, a healthy population through, the, through the, the benefits of football. So these, you know, you know 
you know, 20,000 or 40,000, however the number is of coaches that give their time to keep everybody active, that actually has a, a tangible impact on, on the health of our country. Uh, and it saves, it saves the country money in terms of healthcare costs that it can then spend, spend on other things. So I mean, it's a quite well, a well-researched sort of infrastructure around, around football and its value uh, and the role that volunteers play in it. Um, so this is not just nice, nice to hear stories and it's about you know, people, people getting fulfillment for themselves. Um, they're actually playing a vital role in, in keeping our country healthy, active and happy. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, you mentioned you mentioned the the sort of huge numbers of people involved in volunteering within within Scottish football. I wondered what uh, your kind of research showed in terms of as, as the kind of main motivations that individuals were choosing to to volunteer and give up their time to sort of contribute to the success and and popularity of the game. Yeah, so there um, there's a couple of things there. We we've really divided that into two sort of big categories of volunteering. Um, I tried to give these names out that, that would that would resonate, that would mean something to people. And the best I could come up with was philanthropic, philanthropic volunteering and transactional volunteering. So some people, you know, they do it just for the love of the game. They want to give something back. They don't want anything personally in return other than the enjoyment of doing it. So that's what I, I term as, as philanthropic uh, volunteering. I, I kind of wavered around calling it sort of uh, emotional volunteering, fanatical volunteering, but um, you know, they don't, they don't, didn't seem to land as well. But it's basically an act of giving something back. So philanthropy is the, is the real motivation there. Transactional volunteering is when you're doing it because you want something in return. Uh, and, and most often people are doing that because they want experience. They want to make contacts. They want to uh, get training. Uh, and typically younger people will be transactional volunteers where they're doing it for a relatively short period of time um, so they can put something on their CV, so they can get some experience on something that they only would, would know um, theoretically before, um, or, or they want something out of it, really. Uh, they, want, they want an access to training that would be difficult or, or expensive to get, get elsewhere. Um, so those two very different sets of motivations there, uh, they're, they're, it's really important that we recognise that they're different. Because if you then go to try and reward people for their volunteering, that can be quite insulting. Mm. If you give somebody who's doing it for the love of the game, you try to reward them with a T-shirt or a coffee mug and they think, well, is that all I'm worth to you? Mm. Uh, whereas actually, and a, and a transactional volunteer, they're doing it because they want the experience, they want a reference, they want some training. They don't want a coffee cup or a, or a, coffee cup or a, or, or a T-shirt. Some people want to wear the T-shirt because they want that sense of identity. Um, so it's, it's really important to understand why the, the individuals are volunteering. So starting with those two broad categories, but then every single volunteer will have slightly different motivations. They'll have a different history, passion, background with the club. It may be through a family member. It may be something as closely personal to, you know, this is, this is something that my, my dad or, or my, my granny or, or my, my uncle did. Um, so I want to do that to kind of follow in their footsteps. Um, so it's important to understand people as individuals, and that's a big piece of the, the kind of learning from that. And when we get into the sort of uh, the, the good practices of volunteer management, that's a big part of it, really. Um, but you know, it's, it, it, we, we often think of volunteering as a as a one size fits all thing, and it's, it's something that all volunteers are the same. And we see a lot of clubs not recognising that their volunteers are individuals. Um, and when we went round to talk talking to clubs we found that some of them didn't even know who their volunteers were. I mean, they knew somebody did that role at the club, but they couldn't tell us really anything about them. Um, so that's a, that's a big takeaway from this as well, is actually spending time getting to know your volunteers. You know, keeps them involved for longer, uh, has them delivering more, has them doing a greater job. You then understand also what else you could ask them to do that would really tick all the boxes for them and would, be a, would, would, feel, would, would meet a need that you have as well. Um, so I think that that's important uh, because it's football as well. A lot of people want to get involved uh, for health reasons. Um, you know, it's actually a, a, as a way of getting involved. They may not be competitive sports, 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 uh, sportsmen or women themselves, uh, but they want to stay active. Um, but even just like walking around, walking up and down a touchline is more exercise than, than, than standing still, but actually coaching. Um, uh, and it's good for life skills and, and you, know, you, you feel better from getting out in the fresh air. And, and being active yeah very much so so you, so you mentioned best practice there when it came to volunteering and something else that you discuss within the report is is the investing in volunteers quality mark i wondered if you could just give a little bit of background as to what best practice looks like 
um, and and what the the quality mark kind of entails as well, and why why it'd be worthwhile organisations thinking about going out and, and trying to achieve that. Mm. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's a, that's a very 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 good question. It's a key part of it. Uh, in terms of best practice, uh, best practice is not treat, treating volunteers like employees. Um, so you have to you have to have a different approach to this. Uh, so investing investing in volunteers looks quite similar to investing in people, uh, which is another quality standard that, that that's that's well known in, in, in Scotland, but it's quite different because they're volunteers. Um, um, so there's a bit of a framework that we introduce in, in the report there about about volunteer management, uh, and the reports the reports called creating space for volunteers to make a difference. Uh, so the idea is that for volunteers to get the most out of that, and for you to get the most out of your volunteers, you need to give them space to really shape up their own role. So you can't give people a, a really strictly defined job description because that's not why they've come, come why they come to you. That's not why they've got involved. So so creating space is about doing three things. So you give people clear direction. Uh, you give people a sense of, of, of purpose about what they're doing and where, where you're headed together. Um, you give them support. Um, so you, you you take care of the important things that they give them a, a safe a safe environment and a, and a good foundation in order to to do their work, and you set boundaries. So directions, support, and boundaries you know are, are almost the you know the walls the walls the floor and the ceiling uh, that create this space for volunteers to, to to do what they want to do. And then within that, you know, those are the direction, boundaries and space. There's a set of processes or, or, or best practices that we've documented there. And it's a six step process around recruitment, direction setting, volunteer support, communication and coordination, retention, recognition and reward, and then succession planning and demobilization of volunteers. So you've got a life cycle of all volunteer that moves through them coming to, to volunteer with you for the first time. You know, you know, helping them get that sense of direction, supporting them and making sure that they're that, that they're um, that they get what they need from you, and uh, communicating, communicating and coordinating them so they stay within those boundaries, and you get and you reward them for the things that they do uh, in a way that's appropriate. And then when they're ready to finish, you're able to to do so well. Um, you know, bring their bring their work to a close, bring somebody else in to take over from them if that's if that's needed. And, and also, that I think that another part of that is that volunteers feel that they can step down because that's something that we found is that people feel like once they've been volunteering, doing something for their club for a number of years, nobody else knows it like they do. And if they're to let it go, something something's going to fall apart. Um, so people stay there because they want to move on and do something else, but they don't feel that they, that they can. And that's something that, that's really, really easy to do with staff because you, know, you, you, have, you have a contract of employment and before they quit, you say, well, let's do an exit interview and let's do this, that, and the next thing. Let's hand your activities over to some, somebody else. You can't do with that, that with a volunteer. If they want to walk away and do something else, they can walk away and do something else. Um, the investing in volunteer standard is, is something that, that it covers all of those same, same brands. It's got a slightly different shape to it. It has um, nine indicators uh, that, that say, so are you doing a good job with your volunteers or not? It covers the same kind of, kind of ground and it's something that's quite well established. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing for, for any, any football club that's using volunteers to, to have a look at. It can be done quite informally. You don't need to get this like, certification process or anything. You can read it. You can you know, see what's in those nine in indicators and really assess yourself against it. Do, do kind of like a self-audit on what, what volunteering is like at your club. Uh, and that, that will improve things in itself. So the you mentioned earlier that um, you you spoke to, you went out and you spoke to different clubs and, and tried to gain some sort of uh, best practice as to what some of these other um, football organisations were were doing around volunteering and I, I really like the structure of the report because you've taken many of those the the sort of the the the, um, the volunteer journey aspects of that journey and tried to um, apply certain case studies to, to each situation really. Yeah. And uh, the first one is in terms of recruiting volunteers. And you've spoken to Stephen Swinney at Aberdeen Community Trust around what uh, that looks like. So I wondered if perhaps you could just expand on what are, what are some of the things you learned from talking to Stephen and, and the work that the, the Community Trust were doing? Yeah, okay. So we, so within each of these six steps in the, the process that I, 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 I talked about before, we give a very, very you know quick, brief, easy to easily digestible theoretical background to it and then trying to bring it bring it to life with an example and the example 
often isn't touching on the same areas as the theory, um, but it's just illustrating something that's that's quite unique and quite distinctive about about the organisation, about the about the club and how they've done it. So in, in volunteering, sorry, in in, uh, in the recruitment section. Um, we offer a guide from Volunteer Scotland about, you know, here's the key points to, to include when you're recruiting a volunteer. But what Aberdeen FC Community Trust do quite distinctively is that uh, any programme that they have, participants in the programme are encouraged or invited to become volunteers themselves. So their recruitment process is actually quite different than this theoretical drop a job description and then I invite people to apply for it. There's somebody who's been on one of their programmes um, they create this, this, there's this constant energy around encouraging people to get involved themselves so that the programs grow organically. So they don't have a, a, a volunteer coordinator that's doing, you know, doing this recruitment cent centrally. Every one of their volunteers is recruiting volunteers themselves you know, through the experience of being a participant in their programs. So that's one of the really distinctive things that they do. And we, we go into a little bit of detail telling that story there, the scale and the impact of, of, of Aberdeen's work there. And in 2019, they won the UEFA Grassroots Award um, uh, for the programmes that the, that, that, that the Community Trust is, is running and these volunteers. So that's an incredible recognition for them about what they've done, just what they've done. And they're doing it, you know, they have, they have some full-time staff. Um, they're quite a big organization. So they're fortunate they have, you know, 20 odd full-time staff there. Um, but those 29, 29, yeah, 29 full-time staff, they work across 60 projects. Wow. So they're spread very, very thin. And those projects only run with volunteers and that creating that energy around it. The other thing that we talked to, to Aberdeen uh, FC Community Trust about, which isn't really about recruitment, um, but it's about the very distinctive way that they, uh, they, they promote their presence within the region. So in the northeast of Scotland, uh, Aberdeen work with other clubs uh, to deliver their impact. They don't badge everything as Aberdeen FC. Uh, so they don't run, run age, group F, age group teams as, as Aberdeen FC and attract all the talent into the club. They'd much rather go out and work with individual clubs in, in smaller towns and, and to have that impact. Uh, and we, we, we talked with them about, about various work that they're doing in different parts of, of, kind of northeast Scotland that actually puts the local club front and centre, but has the resource of the big club in the region behind it. Uh, and that's something that, that allows them to, to give the whole of regional football in the northeast of Scotland room to kind of breathe. Um, but also it doesn't deny it the resources that Aberdeen have. So it's a very nice way that they've gone about their business there that allows them to participate and have a much, much wider impact than they could just doing it themselves. So they do it in, they do it in partnership with, with other clubs in the region. So I, I thought that was a really, really nice story there uh, when talking to Stephen about, about what they've achieved and what exactly was that was behind them getting that, that award from, from UEFA a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. That's really nice. So the... Moving on to the, to the next part, direction setting. Um, and you were speaking to Stenhouse Muir, another club that are very, very embedded within their local community and, and really undertake a lot of extensive work within, within their local area. Yeah. Um, what did you learn from talking to them about the kind of broad theme of direction setting? Yeah, well, their, their one is, it's probably my favourite story out of all, all, all of the, the ones that we, I talked to, to when we were putting this report together. Uh, what Stenhouse Muir did do, or what Stenhouse Muir have, is, is such a clear and deeply rooted sense of identity and their purpose that everybody just automatically acts in accordance with that. So they're a community interest company. They were set up with that structure about 10 years ago. And that, that's part of the reason that they have this identity and this really strong, strong connection to their community. But it really came, to, it came into its own at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Um, so within you know, 48 hours of lockdown, uh, Stenhouse Muir had set up a community help initiative. Uh, they did it almost, almost without thinking about it. It was just second nature to them. They, they're, they're a professional football club, uh, first and foremost, but you know, the way they go about being a professional football club is to have a strong presence within their community and, and to always be supporting their community as much as their community is supporting them. So they didn't really have to think too hard about it. So as soon as as soon as lockdown, uh, the first lockdown came in, um, I was talking to Ian McMenemy, who's their chief, uh, their chairman or chief, chairman um, at Stenhouse Muir, talking to him about it, and he said uh, he thought about you know what he was doing for his own family, um, for parents or 
cousins, I'm not sure who it was in his, in his family, but going to the shop and getting shopping for them and bring that in so they wouldn't have to you know, step outside their, 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 their door. Uh, and straight away he thought, well, I'm doing that for my family, so why am I, why am I not doing it for the, the community of Stenhouse Muir? Why, is, why are we as a, as a club not doing that already? And within 48 hours, they had leaflets going through people's doors. They had a logo. They had an email address somewhere that people could come to and contact the club asking, asking for the club's help. They did an amazing amount of work in doing food deliveries, built an incredible amount of trust with their community. So one of the things he said, one of the resources that the football club had is a trade account. Um, so it, has, it had the, the, the wherewithal to go out and just buy people shopping for them not have to collect money from them first. If somebody said, I'm, I'm not able to go out to the shop, I need this, they said, well, someone will go and get that for you. We'll come round, we'll drop your shopping round, and then just phone up the club tomorrow and, and, and settle up with the club for, for the cost of your shopping. And he said, nobody abused it. Uh, so they, they, they treated their community with trust uh, and their trust was repaid by, by I mean, nobody, um, you know, Make it you know, take taking make taking taking abuse of that of that kindness and that support that the club was given. Uh, I think the other thing that they did really distinctively was as soon as somebody called them and, and asked for asked for help, they said we'll get we'll we'll get a volunteer to to call you back within five minutes. Literally within five minutes, they'd they'd match them up with a volunteer, and then that person from the community that called them up had a personal relationship with that volunteer. So that person would then go and get their shopping. It wasn't a faceless, it wasn't the football club doing it, it was a person that was doing it. Um, they were given sort of community anchor status as a result of the work that they did in their community. And actually other community organisations you know, came to the football club in order to get greater impact on what they were doing. So they've got a relationship with the food bank, with schools, with the local authority. Um, so, the, so the club is right at the heart of its community and has been the, the organisation that's done most for its community uh, with throughout the, the, the pandemic period. It's an amazing story. They put their money where their mouth was, both in that underwriting, to, you, know, you know, covering the cost of shopping, but also they didn't put all of their staff on furlough. They kept three staff back off furlough to run this community health initiative. Mm. So the part-time football club, it doesn't have massive resources. Uh, so there's a big commitment from them, but they did that because they, they said, well, that's what we're about as a club. But they didn't have to, they didn't have to ask themselves what, what they were as a club because they already knew. And it was just a very natural thing for them to do. So that direction setting, that gets out into the into the minds of everybody at that club. You know, the players get it, the managers get it, the supporters get it, um, their volunteers get it. And they have just such a, a strong, passionate identity uh, because of that, that clarity of thinking that they have. Mm. I think that's, that's particularly nice, isn't it? Because a lot of clubs will say they are more than a football club and, and, and a lot of them are, but you know, actually, as you say, putting your, your money where your mouth is, examples of it, are, it can be kind of hard to find, but it's great to see a club the size of Stenhouse Premier really kind of be the, the embodiment of that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so moving on, the next club that you spoke to, Bowness, uh, you spoke to Peter Hay and William uh, War at Bowness United, and this was tied into volunteer support. So what was it that you learned from speaking to the guys at the club about how they went um, around supporting volunteers involved in the club? Yeah, um, so it's, it's the it's Bonus United Community Football Club, so it's not the senior club uh, that plays in the Lowland, Lowland League. I hope it's Lowland League. Is it East of Scotland? It's, no, it's the Lowland League. Um, uh, it's the community football club that run age group programmes right through uh, from under sixes to under 19s. They have a relationship with, with Bonus United, uh, but they're a distinct organisation. Um, they have a very, very close link into their, into their village. So it's a, it's a village club uh, almost. It's probably, probably a town, but it feels, feels a little bit more like a, like a village. Everybody knows everybody in, in Bowness. It's a very sort of distinct place. Um, and they may not be unique in this, um, but certainly the way that they run their club uh, is uh, it's about connecting the different age groups uh, and, the, and the kids and the volunteers, the adults, and their families all together and supporting each other. And they describe each age group team has a family uh, associated with it. So it has, it, it has its coach, it has a secretary, and it has an assistant coach. And the assistant coach is one of the young players from, from an older age group. So they encourage their, 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 their kids coming, coming through their age group teams to start volunteering, to start getting involved. Um, and they're, they're kind of like the eyes and ears of mum and dad. Uh, so they get to know the younger kids, they get to support them. Um, the, the, the age groups get to know each other. So one of the really significant things and a really nice story that, they, uh, that, that uh, Peter and William told me when I was there 
is that um, when kids from any of the primary schools in Bowness go to high school, they already know loads and loads of people that will look out for them. Um, both people, that, kids that have come from other primary schools the same age as them, but people two or three or four years older than them that know them from, from the football club uh, and look out for them. So they've got a real you know, sense of family. And that, that, that word kept on coming up in my conversation with, with Peter and William there. Um, and uh, they, 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 they actively manage that. So on the football side, they encourage people to volunteer to get involved and, and start to learn how to coach. It's not really about coaching. It's more about you kind of looking out for the, the younger people, getting to know them, and and, and being good role models for, for 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 the younger kids. They also encourage their their players in all age groups to get involved in their charity partnerships. So if they're going out collecting money for a local food bank or a local local nursery, the whole club gets involved in that. At their end of seasons awards, and they have a volunteer of the year award, and it's given as much prominence as player of the year. Um, so when you when you become part of that that club, uh, it's you're there to play football. You're there to enjoy yourself and to be healthy and, and, and be active. You're there, but you're also there to be part of something bigger than yourself. And you're there to 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 to, to do something for others. Um, so that's such a big part of their identity. And they create that just that a really sort of natural, comfortable environment for people to to take on those responsibilities and take on those roles and, and be supported supported through it. So it's the norm is to volunteer. Uh, it's not just a few people who decide to get involved in that. Everybody gets involved in that, and everybody looks out for, for every, everybody else. So it's a, it's a really nice club to uh, to, to visit, to, to talk to. One of the other things I loved about it was in, during during COVID, um, they decided that they would produce some resources for their for their young people in the club. So they have a mascot. They have Leo the lion, uh, who's the Bonus United uh, mascot. Uh, so Leo Leo the lion dressed up, uh, dressed up uh, and, and recorded videos. They went out just in their closed group. It wasn't going on on, on YouTube or, or Facebook or anything. It was just for, for, the, for the people within the club promoting things like hand hygiene and social distancing. And there's a great slogan that they had, don't hog the bog roll. So in those first weeks of the first lockdown, when people were, were going a wee bit manic in supermarkets, clearing the shelves, don't hog the bog roll and look out for everybody else. And that's just the kind of, it, it summed up their ethos is just look out for everybody. It's not about you. It's about everybody. It's about all of us together. Um, so it's just a, a, a really nice club to, to visit. Um, and uh, yeah, just a lovely story. And doing so much for a small a small town and maybe even a village, a village team, a village club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is really lovely. Um, okay, moving on to, to your team. And although I, I know that you didn't pick them just because they were your team, because they do have them. <laughs> a particularly special setup when it comes to sort of communication and coordination but perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Rafe Rover's approach to that aspect of, of that kind of volunteer journey yeah. and what you learned from speaking to Martin Christie at the club. Yeah well I, I kind of knew the story already and because I'm a Rafe Rover supporter but I'm also one of the volunteers at Rafe Rovers and uh, a couple of years ago Martin Christie who's a volunteer himself um uh, he he offered to help the club really documenting the roles of volunteers at the club. So going around, just finding out who was all involved. And this is one of the examples I've kind of hinted at before, you know, people at clubs not knowing who their volunteers are. So I've I've, I've supported Raythovers most of my days. I've been involved as a volunteer there for more than 20 years. Uh, and when we, we sat around the table uh, at, at one of the, the regular Wraith Forum meetings where the, the different supporters groups come together. We tried to identify all the volunteers at the club and nobody sitting around that table, including myself, could, could even get half the way there to know who was all doing what. Everybody knew a little bit of the picture, but nobody knew the full picture. So Martin's work was, was about then saying, OK, so who are all these people? What do they do on a match day? Where are the gaps? Uh, what are the priorities to bring people in to do? Uh, how can we help the club do a better job job with this? Um, we, Wraith Rovers has a very, very small staff. Um, it has a it has a team, it has coaches, managers, but in terms of non-play, non-football staff at the club, it's a very, very small operation in terms of in terms of full-time paid staff. But it has around 80 volunteers volunteer do, doing work for the club regularly across a whole range of activities. Um, so Martin said about documenting all of these roles and literally you know, writing job descriptions for them, identifying what they did, what was critical about what they did, who they reported to, who they went, who they would go to for support. In the end, after doing that, we, that, that activity sort of stalled because people didn't want to be on an org chart or have a, a, a tightly defined role description. So, we, so Martin shifted tack there and he said, actually, what's important is that we all know who each other is. 
so we can go and ask for help if we're if we're short. So if a program seller doesn't turn up on a Saturday, you, know, you can you can you can you got a better chance of finding somebody to step in for them. Or if you need more hands to the, more hands on deck to do a particular job, a bit of, bit of, bit of maintenance work around the, the the club, there may be some people that are interested in doing that that are available. So it's about connecting people, about communicating between volunteers almost creating a bit of a social network um, between the volunteers and then you can coordinate activity a little bit better. So Martin found a, a smartphone app called Spond uh, and I think it's typically used for, for football teams to coordinate their players but he kind of he turned this to being a, a, being a, a, a bit of a social network for the, for the, for the volunteers um, and it, I mean, it's fantastic. I'm, I'm on this app and now I can see who everybody is. If there's a big issue going on at the club we can chat to each other about it. If the club wants to reach out to the people who are giving their time every week and, and get their feedback on something, they, they can they can do that. And it gives a really you know clear sense of who everybody is. Uh, and you can then bring people together and and uh, and do more sort of you know you can you can run a social event um, or you can go out and uh, and fill in the gaps with with your volunteering and network and, and your group of people, your community of people that are, that are giving their time every every week if you know who they are and they're able to speak to each other. Uh, and, the, and the other thing that it does is that you find out what skills people have that you're not currently making use of. So we found through that somebody, um, I, I think it was somebody that volunteered on a maintenance day. Um, it turned out to be a, a, a fantastic graphic designer. Yeah, he was he was still going through education, so he didn't have a big CV. He wasn't really putting himself forward to the club as a graphic designer, but he designed a logo for the Wraith Forum. Um, uh, so there's there's some, some really nice stories around around it like that. And I and I found as a volunteer that it makes me feel more connected to everything else that's going on at the club. Um, and when when COVID happened and we needed to get more from our volunteers in certain areas, we needed to bring more people together. It was a it was a great way of, of finding out. You know, who was available and who was and who 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 would be interested in doing that. And I think being part of that social network meant that despite COVID, we felt connected and we felt we were part of something and we weren't just sitting in our houses on our own. Mm -hmm. so I think that's, uh, that's something that's been others, not just myself, who've identified Wraith Rovers, uh, their approach to volunteering and just the scale the scale of impact that volunteers have at Wraith Rovers. A lot of people have, have noticed that uh, over the last few years. Not just It's not just me. So it, it felt like a, a good story to tell because I already knew a lot of the detail of that story and it was, it was an easy one to do. So we've spoken about some great community clubs. We're going to talk about Spartans, another, another great community club. Um, and we're going to talk about them in relation to retention and, and recognising and rewarding volunteers as well. So... What is it that's special? I mean, Spartans are often cited in sort of a range of uh, different aspects and in terms of their operations as being very good practice and a, a really um, focused organization when it comes to the community. But what was particularly special about their uh, approach to sort of retaining and recognizing the contribution of, of volunteers? Well, I, I think what, when I looked across these conversations I'd had and, and looked for an example of a club that gets that really, really understands who its volunteers are, Spartans was the one that really popped out in, in my mind about uh, a very human club. So when you, and, and one of the things I write about in the case study, it's not about re re retention recognition reward, it's about this human, human uh, aspect of the club, that when you walk into the, into the, the facility at Ainsley Park, uh, you feel welcomed. You feel you you feel that you, it's very easy to make a personal connection there. People don't introduce themselves by by their role title. They just say what their name is, uh, and you go there for a meeting, and you you, you very quickly fall into this pattern of you know, just everybody is known by their first name, and everyone everyone's just a person. Um, and I think that's what they do. They do it very deliberately, but but in a way that's so subtle that you would miss it if you if you weren't really looking for it. Uh, they talk about, I was talking to Dougie Samuel there, who's the, the chief executive of the academy and the first team manager. Uh, he has two, two roles there. And I was talking to, to him about it. And he said, when you arrived here, you know, what, talk about your experience when you walked into the building. Because I'd, I'd, I'd kind of, I'd mentioned, I'd kind of recognised this in them and I, I made reference to it. And he said, so what, did, what was the first thing you noticed as you walked in? And I said, uh, first thing I noticed was I didn't, I didn't know where, where to go. I didn't know. And so he said, what did you do? And I said, I just wandered in. He says, good, that's what you're meant to do. You're meant to just wander in the door and, and find your own way around. And he, he says, we, we, don't, we didn't put a reception desk at the front door. 
So when you wander in, the first thing is you you don't you don't walk to a desk that's stopping you go any further, and a person that's stopping you from going any further. You walk in, you look around, and you find a sign that says the office is there, and you go upstairs to the office. So I, I looked around, I saw the sign, I thought I'm going upstairs, but straight ahead of you, where where the reception desk would normally be, there's a collection bucket for football boots, and it says donate your old boots here, and it's giving that sign that this place is about giving something to others. So the first thing you notice about I'm in being invited to give something to other people. I'm looking around to find out where the office is. I'm invited just to walk upstairs. And if I don't want to walk upstairs, if I want to walk somewhere else, they'll let me walk somewhere else. What's the worst that can happen? And they say, if you if you treat people that way, that, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Um, you just let people go where they want. You know, people treat you, people return that, that kindness and that human connection um, to, to you. So, and then it's, and, it, and it's, a, it's about who, Do, how Doogie is, um, the way that he, the way he is, and he set that, set that that environment. But it's about how the cold club is, because he said when he first came to the club, he noticed that about it, that it was it was a very personal experience when you when you interact with them, and that's what attracted them to the club, and what, that's what's kept them there, uh, and, and working for the academy. What what they do specifically with their volunteers is that they understand you know how their volunteers want to be rewarded. Um, so if it's training they want, they put them through tra- a, tra- a training training scheme. If they want, um, if they want gear, um, you know, f- football gear, they'll give them a voucher to the kind of place that they want to go and want to buy their gear. They don't give the same thing to everybody. Um, they, they they see their individual their volunteers as individuals. The other thing they've done at Spartans is because of where they are geographically between a very affluent area of Edinburgh and a, and, and a, and a, and a much poorer area of Edinburgh. Uh, they they see themselves. It's not by accident of geography, but they see themselves as a connector between those two parts of Edinburgh. Uh, and that's, that's never been more apparent than, than during COVID when they reached out and they, they did a lot of work around uh, around food poverty uh, and other forms of poverty. Uh, but food poverty was a big one uh, and delivering food to people and getting people from, from one side of them into the into the community on the other side of them to, to help and to be and to connect as human beings. And, and a lot of their volunteers, because they, they did a survey of the volunteers after after this this, uh, this this food poverty initiative was was kicked off and got feedback from their volunteers. And some of their volunteers saying, I'd never been down that street before. I'd never spoken to people from there. And I was a wee bit wary about doing it. Um, but, you know, we just found that we were just people. We, we, we just connected as human beings. So the club has the club has set that environment. They connect people from different parts together, and they just recognise everybody as an individual, uh, and they reward people, and 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 uh, and that that leads to people staying around for longer. So I thought that was a that was a great example of, of how to get that right. There is some formal stuff that you can do, and there's some guidance there that we put in the in the in the in the document. But it's really about treating people as individuals and uh, and, and making it a great place to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that really does shine through whenever you go and visit the club. I sort of recognised instantly some of the things you were, you were talking about within the report. Um, so last but not least, Berwick Rangers, and we're talking about succession planning. So what was what was kind of unique and special about your experiences of talking to the guys at Berwick Rangers around what they do with when it comes to the to the next stage and, and perhaps repeating that cycle? Yeah. Um, well, I think what Berwick Rangers have, have done is, and it was it was triggered by them uh, dropping out of the SPFL. Um, and when when that happened, when they when they finished bottom of League Two and and, and went down into the Lowland League, um, they took that as an opportunity that they had to reinvent themselves as a club. Um, so they came up with a campaign uh, called New Decade, New Goals, New Berwick Rangers, and they they said we're gonna we're gonna look at everything, every aspect of what we do, and try to. To make the club better, use this as the as the impetus to, to, to do something better and to and to reinvent ourselves as a club. Uh, a key part of that was attract, <clears throat> attracting new skills into their boardroom, and uh, to um, you know recruiting new associate directors uh, and and to help out people with with experience, with skills, with abilities. Um, and they can be from anywhere, so they they've looked far and wide for that. So some people aren't particularly local, but they've also um, looked at how they connect to the town better and they're there for the town um, and I think um, there was a great video that went out on the Terrace TV programme where they went and visited Berwick uh, around about this time and they actually you know, looked at how they were reconnecting back and back to the town uh, and so I think that's something that Berwick you know, they're still on that journey 
I think they're still um, you know, kind of rebuilding and they probably would have been further on with that if, if it hadn't been for COVID. They, they didn't have a they had a they had a curtailed season in the Lowland League. Um so it'll be it'll be a while before that rebuilding process is complete. Um, but they were um they were they were putting together a dynamic new board that could actually you know take that what what might maybe maybe may have seemed like a very negative bad news story and turn it into something positive where they reconnect with their club. Um, you know, succession planning is related to the, to the other um, you know, blocks of activity that we talked about before around communication, coordinating, um, understanding who, who your volunteers are and what they do, uh, and also the recruitment process as well. But the succession planning at the end, and I think I, I mentioned it in one of the other. Uh, examples earlier on is, is letting volunteers stand, stand down and I think this is the key thing is that board members in almost every club in Scotland are volunteers as well so it's the ultimate kind of you know act of, of, of volunteering is to is to run the club to take responsibility for the club and a lot of those volunteers put a lot of their money into it as well so it's not about re reward for them the, the money's flowing in the other direction so if you think of, of board members as, as, as volunteers you have to you know, do all of the same things with, with them as you would do for any other volunteer. And succession planning is a really tricky one because that's, again, that's the example that was in my mind when I said some people feel that they can't step away. Uh, they feel that there's too much responsibility, too much knowledge, too much experience in their heads and they can't pass it on to somebody else. What Barry Green just did was they said, well, actually, you know, things have changed for us as a football club on the field and the, the, the division that we're playing in. So let's use that as a, as a way of, of, of really, you know, rethinking everything that happens at the club and, and seeing if we can move forward in a, a very positive way. So I think that, I mean, that's really the Beric story there. And, and uh, it's, it's still, still to be seen, you know, where, they'll, where will they'll, they'll end up, how they will how they'll settle in, where, where they'll find their, their natural place in the hierarchy of football. Um, but they're certainly putting in the effort that would deserve them to, to, be, to be rising back up again. Uh, and yeah, I wish them the best of luck on that one because it's not an, it's not an easy transition to make from from you know league 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 two, a national division to being in a regional division, yeah. uh, with a lot of ambitious clubs in it. Yeah, very much so. Now that we are long and long and hard journey for them. And um, so that kind of concludes the report. It's a really lovely overview of the kind of the process, and I love I love the application of those real life case studies that you've gone out and conducted alongside the kind of theory, as you say, on the journey of it. What were some of the kind of key takeaways for you if you were going to be sort of I'm thinking now of a kind of grassroots club that were, were interested in setting up a volunteering thing uh, structure at their their organization? What would be some of the kind of key recommendations you would offer them to about going about that process? Well, I think every club already has a volunteer network in place. Um, that's, they, they, they can't be a club without having a volunteer network in place. So, it's, But it's putting a little bit more discipline around certain parts of it. Um, so I think the first bit is, is to actually look at you know, the, the, six, the six steps in our process and say, so, so you just how do we feel we're doing on each of those things? Are we really, you know, where are we falling short? Is it recruitment? Is it retention? Is it support that we're given? Is it direction setting? So we, where are we where are we better and worse against each of these things? And the, the investing in volunteers um, standard is another way of doing that. Actually, yeah, you know, and they have they have questionnaires so you can give yourself an assessment against each of those things to say. So how am I doing on each of these 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 areas? I, I think the, the 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 next step would be to to look at a club that's already doing it well. So you don't have to reinvent it, to, to invent any of this for yourself. So you don't have to come up with the great ideas. Uh, there's lots of clubs doing doing a great job of this. Talk to local clubs if you if you have sort of partner clubs uh, or um, or the clubs in your, in your region, or even just on a match day, talking to the coaches at another club and saying, "Oh, so how do you go about doing that?" You just use using your clubs as uh, as a bit of a sounding board to, to to learn and getting some some ideas. Usually, it doesn't take it doesn't take an awful lot to improve. Um, but it's just knowing where to focus is, is the big thing. Um, I think the the biggest the biggest um, the biggest improvement that, that clubs, particularly as you look higher up in football into the professional clubs, uh, the, the, the the most typical thing that they could do is actually getting to know their their, their volunteers better, um, and not just thinking of them all just as volunteers. You know they're they're a volunteer, so they're they're the same. But actually doing something, um, you know, get to know them better 
I have on, you know, I, you know, as, as the, one of the examples I mentioned earlier, the end of seasons awards uh, evening, have a volunteer of the year award, mm-hmm. or get all of your volunteers together for a networking evening. You know, just give them a you know, you know a, a pizza evening. Uh, obviously, when we can all get back in a room together, um, but get your volunteers together and thank them for their efforts. Uh, a thank you is normally you know much more meaningful to a volunteer uh, than the t-shirt, the coffee mug, um, the, the the voucher. Um, and actually the award is the biggest one. So if you're singled out to being, this is the person who's our best volunteer this year. Uh, if, you, if you're running a regular newsletter, have a volunteer of the month, just invite somebody to tell their story and say, they're doing great work. Let's find out a, bit, a little bit more about who they are and say, so who are you? What you're all about? What got you involved to, to start with? What do you hope to achieve from, from, from volunteering at the club? Um, what are your ambitions? You know, how would you like things to, 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 to look? Just you know, let, let them tell their story because that sense of pride you get from telling your story and from being thanked and recognised for what you do is, is often the bit that's missing. That's the easiest thing to do. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's listening to this podcast and they would like to find out a bit more about the report or indeed read the report, where can they, where can they access it? Yeah, so you can get it from the Supporters Direct Scotland website, uh, supporters-direct.scot. Um, it's on our research page there. Um, you can find that just, I think, on the, on the menu. It's just called Volunteer Management, so very difficult to miss. Um, the other way that you can find out more about this is we're going to be following up this with some, some more sort of, yeah, exploration of these case studies. When we're able to go out and actually meet the clubs again, uh, we'll put together a, a few little videos, you know, telling some of these stories and actually seeing what else is happening at those clubs. Um, that was originally part of the plan in 2020. That was going to be part of the, the original project. But obviously, because of, of COVID, we weren't able to do that. But that is something we're going to come back to this year and start to tell some more of those stories. Uh, and I think the, the framework that we've put, put in this report around these kind of six steps to good volunteer management, we'll keep on referring referring back to as we as we tell those stories and, and make it easy for people to pick up those lessons and apply them themselves at their club. Perfect. Okay. Well, we'll look out for the for the videos and uh, thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated as always. Yeah, and thank you for your fine work on that beautiful document. <laughs> you're, the, you're, you're the designer, I was the researcher. So uh, it was a, a, a good good division of, of, uh, of labour. Absolutely. No, it's a pleasure. It's a great report. I really, I really uh, highly recommend it to anyone that uh, is looking for some fine reading. Okay, thank you, Andrew.